The same God who declared the future then has declared the future for us. And the future for us is not bleak, but it's glorious. The future for us is that our king is returning. He's establishing his kingdom over all the earth and we will be raised to be a part of that kingdom. And we have that promise and he knows the future. Hi, my name is Michael Tuck and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. We're studying through the Old Testament prophetical book known as Isaiah. The Bible is divided, most of you know this, but the Bible is divided into two parts, the Old and the New. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and the New Covenant. There's 39 books in the Old Covenant, there's 27 in the New, and Isaiah is one of those Old Covenant books. It was written by the prophet Isaiah more than 3,200 years ago. And uh, it was written in the future for his contemporaries. In other words, when he wrote it, it was what he was writing about was going to be in the future, actually about 170 years uh, in the future. Of course, today it's ancient past for us. And, and I would just like to tell, tell all of you, encourage all of you that that's, that's true. So many prophecies in the, in the Bible, they were all futuristic for uh, the contemporaries of the prophet. But of course, they're in our our past, they've been fulfilled in the past, which is why we have such a, I think sometimes a better understanding maybe of the Old Testament and the things that God was saying and doing even than they did because we're looking back on the things that God did. Now, as a way of reminder for us, just to kind of give us, you know, a, a framework to listen this morning, the book of Isaiah is divided into two parts. Um, just like the Old Testament has 39 books, the first part of Isaiah had 39 chapters. Uh, this is just a coincidence, I'm sure. But the New Testament had 27 books. There's 27 chapters in the second part of the book of Isaiah. And in the first 39 chapters, basically God is talking about this coming judgment. Now, there are promises in the first part. There are, there are some encouraging things in the first part, but namely, it's about judgment. Now, the last part, the second part of Isaiah, is namely about God's promise to restore. It's really meant to be an encouraging thing to people who would read it then, I'm sure, but especially to people who would be reading it 170 years uh, down the way. Chapter 40 begins like this, comfort, comfort my people. And indeed, that's what God hopes to do with this uh, last or second half of the book of Isaiah. Uh, another unique characteristic, which I've already alluded to, but he's, uh, Isaiah's writing a hundred years before Babylon, an empire north of Israel, is going to come down and exile Israel out of the land. They're going to destroy much of the infrastructure of Jerusalem. The temple would be destroyed. The, the walls of Jerusalem would be destroyed. Many people would be killed. The, uh, the, the, uh, the kings themselves would be destroyed and the people would be taken back to Babylon where they would live for 70 years. And, and so Isaiah is writing 100 years before the destruction of Jerusalem and he's writing 170 years before much of what we're going to talk about this morning would actually come to pass that Israel would be restored. So I want to make sure you got that. You got that? 
First 39 books are about judgment. The last 27 books are about God's promise to restore. And God is writing 170 years before that restoration is going to take place. And he's talking about it and telling them about it. Now, if we divided up the last 27 chapters of Isaiah, the first eight chapters, 40 through 48, would really be about God's promise to bless them and God's promise to restore them. And I spent quite a bit of time this week in chapters 40 to 48, or maybe 43 to 48, trying to figure out, okay, how do I teach this? Um, when I realized that these first eight chapters of the second half, they're, they're really, what God's trying to do is tell them why he's going to bless them and then how he's going to do it. That's really his intent. And he seems to say it over and over again in these first eight chapters of the second half of Isaiah 40 to 48. Now, there's a time and a place to study Isaiah verse by verse, every verse, every chapter, but I've decided this is not the time and place to do that. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to basically look at chapters 40 to 48 all at one time. We've already, we've already studied chapter 40, 41, 42. I don't regret that. I felt, like, I felt like God was really teaching us through each of those individual chapters. But from here on out, I just really felt like I shouldn't just teach chapter 43, 44, 45, because it would just be repeating day after, I mean, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. So I am going to treat chapters 43 to 48 as a whole today. And uh, so since I've already done 40 to 42, and, and really it's 40 to 48 are all about the same thing. There's going to be some repetition this morning. I'm going to repeat some of the things that I've already said in the past previous three or four weeks. Now, when I was in seminary, I was taught when it came to teaching and preaching that I should do this. I should tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I should tell you, and then I should tell you again what I just told you. Well, what I've been doing is telling you what I'm going to tell you, all right? And, uh, and so now I'm going to tell you what I'm going, I'm going to tell you. What is God saying to Israel to comfort them? What, what is he telling them that he's, how, why is he going to bless them? How is he going to bless them? What does he want them to know? And in these, in these chapters, 43 to 48, I, I want us to note this morning five uplifting truths that I believe God is communicating to Israel and by extension to us. I'm going to seek to draw an application for us. And so hopefully, again, this morning, although this is going to be somewhat repetitious, you're going to have heard some of these things. I'm hoping that this morning we'll, we'll leave with a, a bit of a skip in our step because these things, I think, have bearing on our life 3,200 years later. So uh, I want to do something I don't always do. Let's pray again. Would you pray with me one more time? Father, would you take my words and my preparation and spirit, would you use it now to encourage us? Lord, it hopefully encouraged them, you know, so many centuries and millennia ago. I pray, God, that you'll use it to encourage us. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 43, verse 1. Now, this is what the Lord says, the one who created you, Jacob, and the one who formed you, Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and the rivers will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, and the flame will not burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, and your Savior. I have given Egypt 
Egypt as a ransom for you, Cush and Seba in your place, because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you. I will give people in exchange for you and nations instead of your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. So here's the first reassuring truth, the first uplifting truth that that God wants to communicate to Israel. It's this, God was not giving up on them as a nation. God was not dismissing them forever. God reminds them in the verses that I just read you that he created them. He formed them as a nation. He named them. They belonged to him. He was with them. They were precious to him. And years from now, years from when Isaiah wrote this down, all right, and they would actually be reading it, they would know and they would remember that God loved them. They would be in captivity, 70 years of exile in a foreign land, their homeland destroyed, but God would be telling them, I have loved you and I haven't given up on you. Chapter 44 continues with the same idea. 44.1 says, And now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I've chosen. This is the word of the Lord, your maker, the one who formed you from the womb. Isaiah 44, verse 21. Remember these things, Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, Israel. You will never be forgotten by me. God comforts them by reminding them that he formed them into a nation. He chose them. And I think he's saying to them, I have a commitment to you and I'm not willing to let go of that commitment. I'm not, I'm not abandoning you now. Please understand that Israel is what he's saying to them. I believe that God would say the same for us. Here's where I, I draw an application for us. I would think he would say the same thing to you and me today. I'm not giving up on you. You are precious to me. You are my people. I love you. He may have given the nations for Israel, but he gave his one and only begotten son for you and for me. He uh, he may have given them the nations, but he gave himself as a ransom for us. This week, uh, one of you sent a lady to my office. You told her to come and see me. And thank you for that. Um, I was sitting at my, at my, uh, cow, on my couch when she walked in and I could see her through the doorway and I, I beckoned her to come on in and, and she came in and sat down and she had a story. I mean, it was a, it was a tough story. I mean, she was laboring under a lot of weight and, um, you know, and I determined after talking to her that she was like me. She was a child of the Lord Jesus. She was a child of God and uh, she was hurting. And there were tears. And you know what I kept saying to her over and over again? God has not abandoned you. God loves you. God is with you. God is not going to leave you. I know it's really hard and it's scary right now, but, but God is going to be with you because he loves you and you belong to him and he's not going to forsake you. That's the encouraging, uplifting word that in chapters 43 to 48, God wants to communicate to Israel. And he wants to communicate it to us today as well, I believe. The second reassuring and uplifting truth is this. God will set them free from Babylon and he will bring them home 
to Israel. He will bring them home to Jerusalem. 43.5, I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up and to the south. Do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who bears my name and is created for my glory. I have formed them and indeed I have made them. By the way, before we go on any further, I I wrote these verses in the bulletin so that you wouldn't spend time writing them down so that you could listen to me, okay, and and be more engaged and not be writing these verses out. So they're in your bulletin. If you're taking notes, you can copy them from there later on. God has promised them or warned them that they are about to be exiled to Babylon. 100 years from when Isaiah wrote, they would be destroyed, right? But he's also saying to them 170 years from now, I am going to return you to your land. 4820, leave Babylon, flee from the child Declare with a shout of joy. Proclaim this. Let it go out to the end of the earth and announce the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them from the deserts. He made water flow from the rock for them. He split the rock and water gushed out. There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. He says to them in 48:20, leave Babylon. This is what I'm telling you guys. You're going to leave Babylon. Years later, you're going to leave Babylon. And just like I provided for Israel when they left Egypt and I provided them water from the rock in the desert, I'm going to provide for you everything that you need. I will not abandon you in Babylon. You will return home. Now, there's three correlated truths in these chapters that dovetail with this uplifting truth that they will not be destroyed in Babylon, but they'll get to come home. Here's the first one. Babylon is going to be destroyed. Babylon itself will be destroyed by the Lord. 4314, this is what the Lord, your Redeemer. Remember, Israel's reading this 170 years before the event. So as this goes with them, 170 years later, they're reading this and they're seeing the things begin to happen. And this is what they're going to read. This is what the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel says. Because of you, I will send an army to Babylon and bring all of them as fugitives, even the Chaldean ships even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. Here's what that means. God says, hey, you know in their uh, cruise liners, you know their, their fun cruise liners, I'm gonna use their cruise liners to, to, to ferry them as fugitives. God has promised them he's going to destroy them, but now he's telling them he's, he's going to destroy Babylon. 47 is all a pronouncement of judgment against Babylon, the whole chapter. Go down and sit, 47 verse one, go down and sit in the dust, virgin daughter Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, daughter Chaldea, for you will no longer be called pampered or spoiled. Take millstones and grind flour, remove your veil, strip off your skirt, bare your thighs, wade through the streams, your nakedness will be uncovered and your disgrace will be exposed. I will take vengeance. I will spare no one. God told Babylon, listen, you've had this spoiled life. Guess what? You're about to be enslaved yourself. You're about to go from the posh life to the pauper's life. He draws the chapter to a conclusion, 47, 14. Look, they are like stubble, talking about Babylon. They are like stubble, 
Fire burns them. They cannot rescue themselves from the power of the flame. I want you to picture a, an out-of-controlled forest fire burning across dried stubble. That's what God says. That's how it's going to be for you, Babylon. This is not a coal, coal for warming themselves kind of fire or a fire to sit by. This is the kind of fire where I'm going to destroy you completely. Here's a second correlated truth to the fact that God's going to bring them home. He would raise up a leader named Cyrus to do it, to set them free. 4428 says, who says to Cyrus, my shepherd, he will fulfill all my pleasure and say, and says to Jerusalem, she will be rebuilt and of the temple, its foundations will be laid. The Lord says this to Cyrus, his anointed, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and disarm kings to open doors before him and even city gates will not be shut. I'll go before you and level the unlevel places. I will shatter the bronze doors and cut the iron bars in two. God's talking about Cyrus there. Cyrus was the king of the Medo-Persian Empire that would arise 170 years in the future. And, and he and God is saying, I'm going to use Cyrus to fund your return. I'm going to use King Cyrus to set you free. Chapter 41, remember the king of the east that God kept talking about? The king of the east is Cyrus. It's this guy right here. And God tells them when, when he sets them free to come home, he's going to destroy Babylon. He's going to use Cyrus, King Cyrus, to do it. And the third thing he says, again, correlated with this return, uh, is that God would do a new thing to restore his people. God wasn't sending them back to Babylon destitute. Verse 40, chapter 43, verse 18. Do not remember the past events. Pay no attention to the things of old. Yeah, it's been really tough. I get it, guys. Forget that. Look, I'm about to do something new. Verse 19. Even now it's coming. Do you not see it? Indeed, I will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Wild animals and jackals and ostriches will honor me because I provide water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. The people I form for myself will declare my praise. God is saying, I'm going, to, I'm going to restore you guys. And when you're coming back through the desert, I'm going to provide water. You know, wild animals, jackals, and ostriches, man, they're going to just rejoice because of the rivers that are going to flow in the desert. Now, whether or not this is metaphorical or literal, I, I don't think it really matters. The point is this. I'm going to do something new, God says, and I'm going to restore you. I'm not, I'm not just going to bring you home destitute. I'm going to bring you home, and I'm going to fix things. So in chapter 44, God says, I am the Lord who says to Jerusalem, she will be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah, they will be rebuilt, and I will restore her ruins. Who says to the depths of the sea, be dry? I will dry up your rivers. Who says to Cyrus, my shepherd, he will fulfill all my pleasure. And says to Jerusalem, she will be rebuilt. And of the temple, its foundation will be laid. God is reassuring them that he's going to do this new thing for them. He's going to restore them. Now, is there uh, an obvious application for us? No, not, not from this promise. This was a specific promise to them. I'm taking you from Babylon and I'm restoring you and I'm going to restore Jerusalem. That's a specific promise to them. I don't, I don't know how we could apply that uh, to ourselves. But having said that, has God ever made any promises of restoration to us? 
his people today? Has he made any promises to you and me that he's going to restore us in any way? Absolutely, he's made that promise. This is the promise he's made. He says, though we die, he will restore us back to embodied life. And though this world is broken and corrupt, he's going to restore this world to the Garden of Eden splendor that it had at the very beginning. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but Christ really has been raised from the dead. He is the first of all those who will rise from the dead. Death came because of one man. Rising from the dead also will come because of one man. Because Adam, all people die. So because of Christ, all will be made alive. But here is the order of events. Christ is the first of those who rise from the dead. When he comes back, those who belong to him will be raised. That's a future promise of restoration to embodied life. And God's going to do it. To the church at Thessalonica, Paul said this, brothers and sisters, we want you to know what happens to those who die. We don't want you to mourn as others do. They mourn because they don't have any hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. When he returns, many who believe in him will have died already. We believe that God will bring them back with Jesus. This agrees with what the Lord has said. When the Lord comes, many of us will still be alive. We tell you that we will certainly not rise before those who have died. The Lord himself will come down from heaven. We will hear a loud command. We'll hear the voice of the leader of the angels. We will hear the blast of God's trumpet. Many who believe in Christ will have died already. They will rise first. And after that, all of us who are alive, we will be uh, caught up together with them. We will be taken up into the clouds. We'll meet the Lord in the air and we'll be with him forever. And one more, Romans 8. This is one of my favorites, Romans 8, 18. That's why I don't think there's any comparison, Paul says, between the present hard times and the coming good times. Paul says, listen, all you suffer now, and, and, and we do suffer in this life. We do suffer. It's difficult at times. And our suffering isn't the same. Why isn't, you the suff- why isn't your suffering the same as mine? Why is mine worse than yours? Why is yours worse than mine? Now, I don't have any answers to those things. I, I don't know that there is a specific answer in the sense that God's saying, I want it to be this way or whatever. But, but what he says is this, whatever you suffer in this life, it cannot be compared to all that God has planned for those who love him. The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. Everything in creation is being more or less held back. This is from the message, by the way. God reigns it in until both creation and all the creatures are ready and can be released at the same moment into the glorious times ahead. Meanwhile, the joyful anticipation deepens. I read from the message because it's the same message that God was giving to Israel. I will restore you and it will be good. God has promised that to us. The third reassuring, uplifting truth is this. Their God, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh, is the creator God and the only God who is truly God. That's a mouthful, isn't it? I use a lot of the same words there. Yahweh, by the way, for those of you who might not know, Yahweh is the Hebrew word for I am. For I am. It's what God told Moses to tell people. This is my name. I am. And I think what he was trying to say is, I am the eternal one. 
I don't have a beginning. I don't have an end. I just am. He says, tell them I am your God. I'm calling myself I am. He is the creator God. This is what God tells them in 40, 40 to 48. I am the only true God. Listen to him in 45, 5. I am the Lord. There is no other. There is no God but me. I will strengthen you, though you do not know me, so that all may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is no one but me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make success and create disaster. I am the Lord. Who does all these things? 4521, again, God says, there is no other God but me, a righteous God and Savior. There is no one except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none other. By myself I have sworn, truth has gone from my mouth, a word that will not be revoked. Every knee will bow to me. Every tongue will swear allegiance. Does that sound like anything from the New Testament? Sounds like Philippians 2, when God says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Yahweh to the glory of Yahweh, right? Every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. It will be said about me, righteousness and strength are found in the Lord. And there's a lot of them, and I don't want to run out of time. 48, 12, listen to me, Jacob and Israel, the one called by me. I am he. I am the first. I'm also the last. My own, my own hand founded the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I summoned them, they stood up together. 44, 6, this is what the Lord, the King of Israel, its Redeemer, the Lord of armies says, I am the first and the last. There is no God but me. 44, 24, this is what the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb says, I am the Lord who made everything, who stretched out the heavens by myself, who alone spread out the earth. Remember, these are people in captivity. They've been in captivity for 70 years and things are starting to come together just like God promised they would 170 years earlier. And one of the things he keeps saying to them over and over and over again to comfort them is this, I alone am God. There is no other God. I alone am the creator of all things. There is no other God. A corollary truth that God makes repeatedly in these eight chapters is this, that your idols are nothing that your idols are not God, they cannot be God. In Isaiah 44, the whole chapter really is devoted to the impotence of idols. In verse nine, here's what God says. All who make idols are nothing, and what they treasure benefits no one. Their idols do nothing for them. Their witnesses do not see or know anything, witnesses being their idols. So they will be put to shame. Who makes a God or cast a metal image that benefits no one? In other words, why would you do that? Look, all its worshipers will be put to shame and the craftsmen are human. That's all they are. They, will, they all will assemble and stand and all will be startled and put to shame. And in verses 14 to 17, God gives this little story. He says, someone cuts down a cedar tree and then he cuts it and part of it he uses to cook over and part of it he uses to warm himself and part of it he carves it into his God and it says, this is my God, and he worships it. And God says, are you stupid? Are you stupid? What, what is it? Why would you do that? Why would you do that? You know, I've been reading, I told you I've been reading in the Old Testament for my devotions, and I was reading in Exodus this week, and, and, and there's the story of Moses bringing them out of Egypt, right? You remember all the plagues? Remember all of that, right? Remember the crossing of the Red Sea? Let's just assume for a minute that it's true. 
And there's a cloud that goes in front of them all the time by day. There's a fire at night. They've been witnessing this for weeks, if not months. I mean, for months they watched God destroy Egypt, right? Moses goes up on the mountain to talk to God, and he's up there longer than they think he ought to be. And they begin to say, well, where's Moses? He ain't coming back. Hey, Aaron, we need you to make us a God. So they gather all their gold, and they form it into a cow, and Aaron says, here's your God. And they begin to worship the golden cow they made and saying, you are the God that brought us out of Egypt. And, and, and I read that, and, I, and I've been journaling again, and I wrote, what am I missing? What am I missing? How, how can that happen? Right? And here, here's my answer. Here's my answer. Remember, we're talking about thousands of years ago, right? And, and, and they are steeped in polytheism. They are, they, their worldview is that there's a God behind everything. They, they don't have the same sense that we have of natural law and natural principles. They, they don't have, God's behind everything. And, and, it's, and so in their mindset, everything has to have a specific deity or a, a special deity behind it. And, and so even though God is doing all of, the, all of that, they can walk out of Egypt and just weeks later they can bow down to a golden cow that they've made. And so it, it became reasonable. I began to understand, okay, why does Isaiah 43 to 48 or 40 to 48, why does he say over and over? Remember it was in 40, 40, 41 and 42 as well. Why does he keep hammering the thing about idols? Because somehow it's just in them that idols are real. That there's a plurality of gods out there, little g, that they've got to somehow placate. And God is lifting them up and convincing them and saying to them, no, there's only one God and I am he. Now how does this, how does this what is this for us? How, how does this uplift us? Man, I, I tell you what, this is a great one for us. There is no pantheon of Roman gods out there. There is no pantheon of Greek gods out there. That There's not a god of air, god of fire, god of water. There's not a bunch of petty gods out there who are fighting with one another, and, and you're caught in the middle, and you've got to choose the right little god to follow, lest the other one punish you. No, there's only one God. And I don't mean to imply that God hasn't created other ethereal spiritual beings. There are, great in stature, in nature. They have a degree of immortality. They're called Elohim. They sit on a council with God as he governs the universe, all right? But there is only one eternal I am God. There's only one Yahweh. There's only one God who's always existed, right? And, and so, man, just like he told them, remember, remember, it's, there's only one God, I'm he. Man, what a great uplifting truth for us. There's only one God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He did it. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. Here we learn that God is one God, but he's at least the, the Father, he's at least God, Yahweh, and the Word, right? Of course, we know him to be the Word and the Spirit as well. 
Colossians 1.15, the Messiah Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created. See, if you exist before anything is created, then you're the eternal one, right? You're the one who's created all things. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else. He holds all creation together. God, or, or, or maybe more specifically, the person of Jesus created everything, everything that is. And he alone is the only true God. And he made us, listen to this, he made us in his own image. I know this is kind of tangential, it really doesn't have anything to do with the Isaiah passage, but, but he made us in his own image. We're different than all the ethereal beings that he's created. All the, all the angels and whatever beings exist in God's spiritual realm, we're, we're different than them because we're created in his image. You know, again, I'm not going to chase this, this, this path too far. But you know, one of the things I think it means to be made in his image is that he gave us rulership over this world in the same way that he rules all of creation. Some have suggested that being made in the image of God is really the fact that he's given us dominion over the earth to lead it, to rule it. And, uh, you know, on Wednesday night in our Bible study, we're going through the book of Hebrews, and, and one of the things that that uh, the brother was talking about in, uh, in his comments on chapter two was this, that God created us to rule like Jesus, right? But we don't rule like Jesus, do we, in our brokenness? We rule like despots, an authoritarian narcissist. That's how we rule, right? That's not how Jesus rules. Jesus rules with grace and truth. And so you and I, as 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 rulers alongside Jesus and his kingdom over the earth, then we should be ruling with kindness and grace and truth and, and faithfully following God's design for his world. Number four, number four, God has proved, here's the fourth reassuring and uplifting truth. God has proven himself by declaring the future. Now, if you want to do something this week, it'd be great for you to read 40 to 48 in, in your quiet time this week. Okay, just read the entire thing. Um, but in, in, in these chapters, God kind of saying over and over again in different chapters, he's saying, you know, uh, I am declaring to you the future. Now, last week, I think it was, we talked about the hiddenness of God. And we acknowledged the fact that God does not overtly reveal himself to our senses, right? And that's true. Uh, you know, I mean, you can argue with me. I'll be glad to discuss it with you afterwards. I don't believe that God is overtly revealing himself to our senses and making us known through our sensory perception. That being said, right, that being said, that doesn't mean that God is not revealing himself to us. The Bible says he is revealing himself to us. He's revealed himself in creation. He's revealed himself in our consciousness. He's revealed himself in our hearts, right? He's revealed, he's not left himself without a, without a witness. You know, I, was, uh, I, I meant to say this a second ago. I was, again, reading in the Old Testament. I was reading about Moses and, and how Moses would talk to God like a friend talks to a friend face to face. You know what I wrote in my journal? I said, God, why? Why don't, why don't you talk to us like that all 
You know, why'd you talk to Moses? I mean, it was a rhetorical question. I didn't expect an answer. I don't know an answer. But I then finished with, God, would you talk to me like that? <laughs> why'd you talk to me like that? You know, so God, God is not overtly revealing himself to our senses, but he is at the same time constantly revealing himself to us. And one of the things that Isaiah 40 to 48 says is this, God is revealing himself to you and to them and to us by declaring what the future would be before the future ever got here. Ecclesiastes 6 says that man cannot predict the future. But in these chapters of Isaiah, God is basically saying this. This is my paraphrase. I have left a marker to point you to myself. And that marker is this. I'm telling you the future before it happens so that you will know that I alone am God. I am your God and idols are nothing. 44, verse six through eight. This is what the Lord, the King of Israel and its Redeemer, the Lord of armies says, I am the first and the last, there's no God but me. Who like me can announce the future? Let him say so and make a case before me since I have established an ancient people. Let these gods declare the coming things and what will take place. Do not be startled or afraid. Have I not told you and declared it to you long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God but me? There is no other rock. I do not know any. Get the nations together, God says. Let the idols predict the future. 45 verse 25, speak up and present your case. Yes, let them consult with each other. Let the idols talk. Who predicted this long ago? Who announced it from ancient times? Was it not I, the Lord? There is no other God but me, a righteous God and a savior. There is no one except me. Here's what God is saying. I announced this 170 years ahead of time. Why? So that you would know that I and I alone am God. 46.8, remember this and be brave. Take it to heart, You're trans- take it to heart, you transgressors. Remember what happened long ago, for I am God and there is none other. I am God, no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what was not yet done, saying my path will take place and I will do all my will. God is basically saying, I am telling you the future so that you would know and you wouldn't attribute it to any of your idols. You wouldn't attend it. So how does, I, I do have a little, little tangential thing I want to talk about here for just a second. How does God know the future? How, how does God know the future? I mean, we could get into a lot of philosophical stuff here. So, some Christians believe that God knows the future because the future has already been decreed by God. God's already micromanaged the future so that he knows he's already declared what's going to happen and it cannot happen any other way because he's declared it to be so or he's, he's managed it that way. Much like a movie. A movie can't end any other way than it ends. You can watch it time after time, right? But it always ends the same way. This, my wife says it's okay to tell this joke, but my wife, a guy and a blonde are at a, at a cafe bar and they're watching the news and there's a guy about to jump off the, off the edge, ledge of a, of a building and the guy looks at the blonde and he says, uh, I'll bet you $20 he jumps. And she says, all right, I'll take that bet. So they watch and he jumps. So she goes to get the $20 to pay. He says, ah, you don't, you don't have to pay me. He said, I, I, I'd already seen it. And she said, well, that's okay. I'd seen it too, but I couldn't believe he'd do it a second time. (laughs) 
Some people believe the future. Now, if you're blind, I'm blind, okay, so I, that applies to me. Don't be, don't be mad at me. Some believers believe the future's like that, right? It's like a movie. It's already declared by God. It can't go any other way. Um, the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful, I mean, whatever it is, God caused it to be like that, and, uh, and these are his purposes for the future, And because he knows the future, because he caused it to be that way. And at the end of the day, people can only do what God has determined for them to do or decreed for them to do. Uh, he decided it, he caused it. I just want you to know, I, I don't agree with that understanding. I don't agree with that understanding. God says, I know the future, but I think he also says, but it's not determined. I know the future, but it's not determined. And what I mean by that is, take for instance, when, when God sends uh, Jonah to Nineveh, right? And he says, go there and tell them in 40 days I'm gonna destroy this land. And, uh, and that was what he was going to do, right? He was going to destroy the land. That would have been, God knew that would be taking place. But they repented and the future changed. I, I, I kind of see it more like the Christmas carol where Scrooge asked the ghost of Christmas future, are these shadows, or tell me, are these shadows things that cannot be altered? Or are these just the things that will come to pass if there is no change? Remember that line? And of course, then that, he goes back to the bed and wakes up. So let me, let me just say, I have absolutely no idea how the future can be fluid and yet God absolutely know what the future is going to be, right? To me, that's a mystery. That's a mystery, right? That I, I don't understand that. But I think that's what God teaches, that the future is fluid, that it is not determined, that, that choices we make affect the future in a certain way, right? And they can affect the future up until the moment we make whatever choices we make. Um, but at the same time, God knows the future, and I can live with that mystery. But here's God's point. Regardless of how you see the future playing out, whether God's determined it or whether we don't know how God knows the future, but it's not determined. Either way, here's God's point. I know the future. I know the future. And you be encouraged because I've told you. He's always telling Israel, I've told you what the future is. So 48 verse 3, I declared the past events long ago. They came out of my mouth. I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted and they occurred because I know that you are stubborn and your neck is iron and your forehead is bronze. Therefore, I declared it to you long ago. I announced it to you before it occurred so that you could not claim my idol caused them, my carved image and cast idol control them. You've heard it here. Observe it all. Will you not acknowledge it? Now in the same way, what about for us? Is there something for us in here? Absolutely. The same God who declared the future then has declared the future for us. And the future for us is not bleak, but it's glorious. The future for us is that our king is returning. He's establishing his kingdom over all the earth and we will be raised to be a part of that kingdom and we have that promise and he knows the future. The final and reassuring uplifting truth is this, God has forgiven their sin. That's the thing he says kind of over and over again, I have forgiven you. Chapter 43, verse 24. You have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. God starts out through Isaiah reminding them of their sinfulness, right? 
but immediately follows it up with this. I am the one. I sweep away your transgressions for my own sake and remember your sins no more. Remind me. Let's argue the case together. Recount the facts so that you may be vindicated. I have swept away your sin, God says to them. I will remember your sin no more. That's being written before uh, before the, the judgment, before God has exiled them to Babylon, he's basically saying to them, guys, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to forgive you. Isaiah 44, 22, God says, I've swept away your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. 170 years later, they're reading this in Babylon. God has forgiven us. What an uplifting truth to all of Israel. God has forgiven them. God's forgiven us our failures. He's swept them away. He's cleansed us. How about for us? Well, it's the same. It's the same for us. God is telling us he's forgiven us. It's the heart of the good news. God has forgiven you your sins. You know, some of you came in this morning into this building, into this room, and, uh, and I just have a feeling that you stumbled this past week. And you really did some things that you're ashamed of, maybe in your heart, maybe for real, maybe out, maybe you acted them out, and that's, they weren't just in your heart, they were acted out. And you've come here anyway, but you feel the shame and the guilt. And, uh, but I, I want to tell you, the good news is that God has forgiven us. And when there's repentance, there's cleansing. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Ephesians 1, 6 So we praise God for the glorious grace he's poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. The author of the book of Hebrews quotes God and applies it to Jesus, and this is what he says, 8.10 But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I'll put my laws in their mind and I'll write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And in verse 12, he says, and I will forgive their wickedness and will never again remember their sins. In the Lord Jesus, God has forgiven us our sin. He he longs to forgive you. He longs to restore you into relationship with him. As many as come are received by God as sons and daughters. So my final question, my final word in in this talk will be, have you come, will you come? Have you come, will you come? So let's just review. God has not given up on you, Israel. God has not given up on you and me. God will bring you home, Israel. God's gonna bring us home to be with him forever in his kingdom. God alone has created you, Israel. God alone has created us. He's the only true God. God has proven himself by declaring the future. God has proven himself to them and God has proven himself to us by telling us what the future would be and then fulfilling it. I mean, all the prophecies of Jesus fit here. And God has forgiven you, Israel, and God has forgiven you and me. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. 
Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.